I feel like I say this every year, but it's hard to believe that Advent is upon us. Like, what? It's only November, and how, how can this be? Um, every year, we, we go through this process of preparation. Four Sundays before we celebrate Christmas, we are doing the candle lighting and, and all the music. It's so awesome. Um, and Advent varies from church to church over the years, um, from some churches who don't even do it to others who do it very differently. But no matter who practices Advent, there's some, some similar things. Like typically, there's a color scheme, right? Like purple uh, leading up to, to Christmas, which is then white. Typically, there's some sort of candles. Like you'll notice like ours, there are the three dark purple ones, and then there's a pink one, and so in some traditions, like, there's faith, hope, love, the pink one is joy, and then Jesus in the middle. Some other traditions, and we've done this too in the life of our church, is just four dark ones, and you don't do the joy one, and that's just because there's other branches of the church that do it that way. Um, there's typically the, the texts of Scripture that are common during Advent. There's the prophets and, and the gospel stories where you've got in Matthew, like um, Mary and Joseph and the angel coming to Joseph and telling him like, hey, dude, you're, it's, it's me. It's not, you know, Mary marry her. And you've got the, the Magi, the wise men, they're in Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel, you've got Elizabeth and Zechariah and the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. You've got Mary's Magnificat, angels and shepherds and all of that stuff. Those are in those two gospels. And even in the prologue of John's gospel, um, that is a common text to preach through during Advent as well. It talks about the incarnation or the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus. It's a magnificent text. But I never hear anyone preaching out of Mark's gospel during Advent. And it's understandable from one point of view, because Mark does not have Mary, Joseph, shepherds, well, has some angels, but they're not the nativity story. It doesn't have magi, doesn't have any of that stuff. And I gotta say, as a preacher, it's just fun to preach that stuff, like angels and, like, it's, it's really exciting, and you don't usually hit those stories in the other times of the year. So I get why most people don't preach Mark. But um, this year we're gonna do something different, and we are gonna preach through Mark during the Advent season. And I, I wanna do this for three main reasons. Um, the first one is I just think it's good to mix it up sometimes. Like sometimes being over-familiar with the story can make you just assume that you already have heard it and you already know all the stuff, and then you kind of can tune out. And it becomes really sentimental and like, oh, this feels good, but it doesn't necessarily speak to your heart. So what hearing Advent and, and, and hearing Mark's version of it, it's probably something that's like, oh, that's a little different. Different, little different angle. So I think that's one main reason. Um, the second is because I just consider that many, many scholars consider Mark's gospel to be the first gospel that was ever penned or written down. The first account written of Jesus's life, and apparently the author didn't think it was like necessary to put any of the stuff about Mary and Joseph and angels and magi. And so could it be that Mark's gospel has something significant to say about Jesus that's just in a different package? And I, I think probably that's the case. And third, while Mark may not give us nativity stories and shepherds, it's the way that Mark tells the story of Jesus that shows us what God has done for us and becoming human in order to rescue creation. 
And so I guess that begs the question, like, how does Mark tell the story? Well, over the next four weeks, we'll be exploring this prologue, the beginning of Mark's gospel, and we're going to begin in the first three verses. That's what we're going to cover today, the first three verses, which focuses on the promise of God to us, the promise of God to his people. And here's how it goes. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And that's it. Mark does not waste any time getting to the point. This is a feature that we're going to see all throughout Mark's gospel. His favorite word, I'm convinced, is immediately. Like when we get into Mark's gospel, you're just going to see immediately Jesus went here, and immediately Jesus went there, and immediately Jesus said that, and immediately people started following, and immediately demons ran away from him, and immediately, like it's everywhere. It is a fast-paced gospel. Mark is the shortest of the gospels in terms of words, like it's just like the shortest book of the four gospels. Um, And yet it is the most active of the four Gospels. Like it is action-packed. And it's no surprise then that Mark just comes out and declares what he thinks about Jesus. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. There, that's what I think about Jesus, that he's the Christ and the Son of God. No buildup, no genealogies, no angels, no shepherds. There you go. Now, Mark may not have the Virgin Mary narrative, but this first sentence is pregnant with meaning. On the one hand, you could simply read it as an introduction to his book, right? So, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. You could read it that way. But here's why you shouldn't. Because no one who first heard Mark's gospel read in the first century could have thought of it that way. You know why? because there was no such literary genre as a gospel. It's not like Mark was saying, this is the beginning of my novel, which tells about this man, Jesus, or this is the beginning of uh, my historical account of this man, Jesus. This is the beginning of uh, my, my encyclopedia or my journal article about Jesus. A gospel was not a thing that people had in mind as a written thing. but it did have a meaning. So the word gospel in Greek, and we're all gonna say this together just to get our attention, is euangelion. Euangelion. The word euangelion is a word that first century Jewish people and Roman people would have known. And it wouldn't have been an association with a book. It would have been associated with a two, two significant meanings. The Greek word euangelion literally means, if you were just to translate it like a dictionary uh, meaning, is good news. So the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's the literal wooden translation of sentence one. That's what you would find in a dictionary. But it meant more than that. So like you could look up the word revolution in an English dictionary, and one meaning of revolution is like a mechanical engineering term, right? It's the revolutions of your crankshaft. In fact, a lot of your cars have an RPM gauge that tells you how many revolutions per minute your engine's going. 
right? But we all know that that's not the only meaning of revolution. Uh, revolution can also have a political connotation and where things, right, revolve, like there's one leadership and then it changes because people rise up or a coup occurs or whatever, the CIA gets involved. Which, yeah, anyway, <laughs> lots of things can happen to cause a revolution. And so in a similar way, euangelion literally, woodenly in a dictionary might mean good news, but it came to have two separate meanings to people, especially to first century Jewish people like Mark's audience. And the first of those meanings is from the passage that uh, the Fraser family read just a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 40. In that passage, God tells the prophet Isaiah, I want you to say these things to my people to comfort them with the euangelion, with the good news. The good news of Isaiah 40 is that God promises to come and dwell among them, that he is going to become king. And in like certain biblical genres of literature and apocalyptic literature, this is what's known as the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a time or an age that would come into history and, and change the course of history forever and fulfill God's promise. So in the biblical worldview, history is going somewhere. In um, some uh, Eastern traditions or in a pagan worldview, history doesn't go anywhere. It repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. It's in cycles. It's cyclical. It's turned in on himself. In a biblical Jewish and Christian uh, worldview from the scriptures, history is going somewhere. So there's creation and there's relationship with God and there's a breaking of that relationship and there's struggle and there's hope and one day, the day of the Lord, which would be the next phase in history, it's going somewhere. And it's the day that God would break into history to personally change the course of that history. That's the day of the Lord in Scripture, with the good news for those who trust in God to fulfill His promise. Now, news like that can only make sense in context. And in this case, the good news is fulfillment of a shared story and a shared hope with a shared future. The prophets told of a day when God would come, and what Mark is saying is that the story of Jesus is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise in Isaiah 40 and other places in the prophets. That's why it's good news. So that's one meaning, that when people hear the euangelion of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, they're thinking, whoa, this could be the beginning of that promise being fulfilled, the good news that God is coming to dwell with us and to change the course of history. Now here's the second meaning that every first century person in the Roman Empire would think about. When Jesus was born, there was already a king in the land, and that was Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome. Augustus was, was so uh, full of hubris that he is the first emperor to declare that emperors are the son of God, I mean, or the son of the gods, and that every emperor after him would also be a son of God. And there began to be a cult to worship the emperor as one of the pantheon of Roman gods and goddesses. And here's what, here's what I'm getting at. He taught that when an emperor was born, 
Or when an emperor conquered a new land, that they would send runners to all the lands in the empire with the euangelion, with the good news that your savior, Caesar Augustus, has just killed your town and now he's the new king. Rejoice! With the good news that there's a new emperor born in Rome, rejoice and give tribute. <laughs> That's what the euangelion meant in a Roman context. The good news that you now have a new Lord and Savior. Of course, that would be, um, that would be the emperor. As I said that, you know I was being a little facetious because what is good news to a few is usually bad news to most other people. And the arrival of a new emperor in the Roman world was not good news for many people. For most people, it was news that their lands were now owned by someone else and that their crops were now taxed to pay luxury, uh, to pay for the luxury of that emperor to live uh, back in Rome. Um, that their lives may now be instantly enslaved whenever the emperor wants to, that men could be conscripted to serve in the military whenever the emperor wants to, that women could be taken and made to serve in whatever way the emperor and his lords want. You could also decide, oh, you've got a lot of marble in your town that I just took over. You're now miners. You're working the quarry. So this is kind of how the empire worked. And so here we have Mark opening his account of the gospel of Jesus' life with, this is the beginning of the euangelion, or the good news. But what type of news would this be? A new emperor? Because that's not good news for most people. A new oppressor? Or will it be the fulfillment of the promise of God to deliver his people? Well, Mark doesn't really make us guess, because in sentences two and three of his opening uh, prologue, he quotes Isaiah 40 from the very beginning. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Isaiah 40 was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And at that time, many of the Israelites had largely abandoned their monotheism. That doesn't mean they didn't worship Yahweh anymore. It just meant that they also worshiped other gods and goddesses. And as a result of that decision of compete, uh, repeated idolatry, God said, you know, you're going down a path of destruction. I'm going to withhold my protection from you. Babylon came, conquered them. And in the midst of their, they're dragged off to captivity in Babylon and they're, they're mourning for years and years and years. And in the midst of that suffering and in the midst of that captivity, God speaks to them through one of his prophets, Isaiah. And he declares, I am going to rescue you. Just as I rescued you a thousand years earlier in the Exodus, God promised that a new exodus would be his act for them and their generation. That it wouldn't be just for Israel, though, that through that act of salvation, God would make a way for the entire world to know him. It would be an exodus for everyone. But despite that good news, history tells us that the nation of Israel never did fully change their ways. And so hundreds of years, uh, even after Babylon, they lived under, under constant ebb and flow of foreign occupation and oppression. And during the first century AD, when Jesus was born, Israel was under Roman occupation. Rome demanded high taxes, 
forced locals to house and feed uh, Roman military whenever they came to town. So we could just be here in Bellingham, you know, in the first century, and doing our thing, doing our work. And then all of a sudden, a regiment of, or a cohort of, of, of Roman soldiers came, and you would just be like, oh, um, you guys are housing them tonight, and Christine, you've got to feed these 14 dudes. And I would hide Zoe in the, you know what I mean? And like, and Frank, you and Nancy have to make spaghetti sauce for like another dozen uh, Roman soldiers, and th- that's just how it would work. Like, you were just forced to serve the empire. And if you're living among the Israelites in the first century, the hope of deliverance, that longing would have been palpable. According to the writings of that time period, it was on everybody's mind. And what Mark is saying is that this Jesus the Christ, Christ is Greek for Messiah, that Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah 40, of God coming to dwell with his people, to lead them in person just as he did as the pillar of smoke and fire in the Exodus, just as he walked in the garden with humans in Genesis 2. And that is fantastic news the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to us is the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. Now, many of you know that I am a Tolkien fan. I typically prefer the books over the film. Um, well, there's one thing I think the film did really well in the Lord of the Rings story. Um, and atop my themes that I really love about that story in the books and the film is the story of fidelity in friendship. I just, I love the Sam, Frodo, well, the whole fellowship of the ring kind of, it's my favorite. Um, So for those of you not familiar with the story, you can glaze over because this is fantasy and maybe you're not into that. Sophia, you're fine. You know this. Um, uh, But there's this ring, it's magic, it is bad. And it is, if it gets to the personification of evil, which is the Sauron dude, like he will cast the whole world into darkness and it would be nigh impossible to defeat him. Uh, but anyone else who has this ring, it corrupts your dang soul. So like it's not safe. And the only way to get rid of it is to put it in the volcano in enemy-occupied territory. With me now? I mean, it sounds like so basic, like a fairy tale, yeah. Nine companions are chosen to do this mission um, made up of the various races of elves and dwarves and hobbits and men, and there's one wizard named Gandalf who's really awesome. And in the cinematic telling of the story, the hobbit, Sam, made a promise to Gandalf that he would never leave his master and his friend's side. No matter what happens, I will not leave Frodo, his, his friend. I promise. Well, the moment comes in the film when Gandalf, the guy who Sam promised, dies, or apparently dies, spoiler alert. He actually really does die. Then two of their hobbit companions, Merry and Pippin, get carried off by these orc characters. They're nasty guys. They have really bad breath, I assume. Um, and they, you just, yeah, really bad gums. But anyway, so they, they take off. Boromir, another guy, this wicked warrior dude, he's awesome, uh, who was corrupted by the ring, he betrays friendship, and then he dies a hero. It, their whole friend group is falling apart. It's only like the first of three movies. Am I ruining this? Like, this has been out long enough. You should, it's on you if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> and Frodo, realized, he's the ring bearer. He realizes, like, this ring, 
is Trubs, and it is like corrupting everyone. I love everyone too much. I'm just going to go it alone. He slips it on because it's magic. He goes invisible. He gets in his little boat because he's a little dude, and he goes out. And Sam, his friend, is trying to find Frodo, and he realizes, my friend's a good dude. He would do this. He runs to the water where the boats are. He sees this boat going out, and Sam cannot swim, and his his mentor guy, Gandalf, who he made the promise not to leave Frodo with, he's dead. And this is going to get worse before it gets better. Like, their friends are dying. Evil looks insurmountable. Sam could have just gone home. But what he does is he can't swim. I told you this. He goes out into the water, and he gets up, and he finally, he's almost to the boat. He can't make it to the boat, and he just starts drowning. And it's just, I will myself to be at your side course the dramatic fashion Frodo sends his hand in and gets Sam out and he's just like you fool like you can't come with me I've got to do this alone and then Sam basically just says I made a promise Mr. Frodo that I wouldn't leave you and I don't mean to and he won over Frodo's heart and I'm just get the chills right now but like that fidelity of friendship in the face of known danger of impossible odds of not, of almost being sure you're not going to live and not going to make it, but I am with you. And you don't see that kind of promise keeping in everyday life anymore. All of us have had friends and coworkers and classmates. Sometimes they break trust, they betray. Sometimes, don't we, break trust and betray, talking behind someone's back. Um, yeah, we're culpable. We make sacred vows to each other in our culture all the time in marriage, and it doesn't matter if you're Christian or not. The divorce rate is way too high, right? People stand before God and congregations, and they make all sorts of vows of baptism or child dedication or baptism, and then they leave. Do promises really mean much anymore? Is there true fidelity like Sam and Frodo in the world today? And I guess I bring all that up because in terms of the scripture, like Mark's gospel and the advent of Jesus, what he's saying is that Jesus is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise. But if promises don't mean much to us, does that mean much to us? This archaic story in an old book? Or is it just another empty promise falling on the ears of people living in a society like we do with little or no commitment? I'd be the first to say that if what Mark is saying about Jesus is merely a story made up to give us inspiration or encouragement, or some way of living, like if Mark is an example to us of how to live and make the world a happier place, then it fails miserably. Like it's a crappy book, if that's its goal. I mean, we're talking about a story that stars an itinerant Jewish teacher who's a relatively small following through his whole life, through mostly made up of non-influential people, who is betrayed by the own, his own religious leaders, and then he's crucified by the oppressive Roman Empire, 
not just killed, crucified. That is a torturous, intentionally humiliating death. And he's crushed by all the people that he claimed to come to rescue. That's, that's a failure story. So yeah, Jesus fails as an example, or as an ideology, or as a way to bring Christmas cheer. But that's not the claim of Mark's gospel. The good news of Mark's gospel is directly in line with the season of Advent and what it's all about. It's about the three comings of Jesus, the three ways that God's promise and presence plays out in reality. And the first way that that plays out is the historic fulfillment of God coming to dwell with his people. Yeah, Jesus was born into an insignificant family who lived in an oppressed nation, and he ended up being crucified by the oppressor. But that's not the whole story. It makes sense that the God of Israel, who chose an insignificant people to rescue out of slavery in Egypt, would also come humbly to them. Like, that's in line with the story. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that while he ruffled the feathers of the powerful elites, he absolutely changed people's lives for the better. People on the social margins received love and dignity, healing and community through Jesus. Jesus said things that only God should say, and he did things that only God can do. Through his kindness, through his life, we see what God is like. Through his holiness, we see what God is like. Through his power, we see not only what God can do, but what he chooses to do for the sake of other people. And most significantly to the historical Jesus is that he shows us a God who gives his life for us. And that's something that even non-biblical authors in the first century, such as Josephus, would say, yeah, this guy was crazy. Like, he claimed to be God, and he gave his life for people. Like, people noticed that that was the claim, and that's what happened to him. Rather than a warlord who perpetuates violence to win a victory, Jesus receives the violence and sin and death of the empire and establishment, and he makes a way for all of us who trust in him to receive real life, true life, substantial, meaningful life, and it also happens to be eternal life. And that's fantastic. And when Jesus is abandoned by his friends, betrayed by his own people, and killed by Rome, there's no reason in the world why people should have started a religion based around him. There should be no reason for anyone to want to be like him. It wouldn't be Christianity, it'd be like loserism or something like it wouldn't be worth doing. It wouldn't even exist unless he actually did rise from the grave, unless he actually did show himself to his disciples and many others, unless people were so transformed by his resurrection that they came to understand that Jesus was God with us, a fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 40. But Advent isn't just about a certain point in history when God dwelt with his people in the flesh in the person of Jesus. I mean, if that were the case, the movement of following Jesus that began so amazingly in the first century in the book of Acts and started to spread, like it would have just died out. 
Like, that's great, mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, you saw Jesus. So, like, my life still stinks over here in Capernaum or uh, in Philippi or, you know, that's great. Like, grandma and grandpa had these cool experiences, but um, it's not doing it for me now. Like, you keep talking about this dead guy and, I mean, who, where was he from? Bethlehem, what? Like, it would have just died out. But the second aspect to Advent is that God dwells in his people, even now through the Holy Spirit. It's the abiding presence of God in the Holy Spirit that even enables us to have faith and trust. You know, that is the most spoken about spiritual or written about spiritual gift in Paul's letters. It's like we often think about like, well, Paul talks about speaking in tongues and, and prophecy and teaching and all of these kind of things. Faith is a spiritual gift. And so if you have faith in Jesus, like, think about how crazy that is. Like, it's okay to say that. You don't have to be like, oh, I'm a bad Christian if I think it's weird. Like, we're talking about a resurrected Jewish guy who got crucified by the Roman Empire. It takes faith to say that you believe that. And I think that that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what the Bible says. It's not because you and I are so smart, and it's not because you and I are so dumb that we trust that. There's a lot of smart people in this room, a lot smarter than I am, who have deep faith. And I think that that's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that helps us, uh, to, to help shape our character and to accept deep in our bones that we're forgiven and adopted into God's family. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers us um, with, with gifts to reflect the ways of Jesus into our lives and into our community. It's the continual presence of God, the most mysterious of the Advent emphases, and yet it's absolutely vital because without the work of the Spirit, work I am convinced is mostly behind the scenes and taken for granted, we would have no true power to be a community in the name of Jesus. I don't know if you realize this and like getting to know me over the years, but I don't do fake things very well. Um... I mean, authenticity is one of our core values because I just had to have it in there. Like, I can't, I can't just pretend for very long. And, um, yeah, it's this, it's this the spirit action of holding us together in Jesus' name that is the real substance of this whole thing. Um, that's, that's, that's what I'm on about. Oh, that we would come to know Jesus more deeply this Advent through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Mark's gospel presents us with the promise of God to dwell with us, both through the historical Jesus and in the living presence of his spirit. But let's face it, the world is still broken and in deep need of rescue. So either it was like, sort of fulfilled promise, or you know, maybe God couldn't do it, or like what's going on? Because it's still messed up. We saw purple cloths and like representing the brokenness of our lives in the world. And this is the third aspect of the Advent promise that Mark is on about. The day of the Lord. The day that began with the coming of Jesus is held in faith through the coming and abiding of the Holy Spirit. And that faith is that one day it will come in a decisive way. At Advent, we rejoice that Jesus has come. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, that he's with us. That's what we recognize all the time, that the Spirit of God is with us. But 
We long for the day. We long for the day when he will return and make all things new. When he fulfills the rest of the promise to bring justice and grace, restoration and renewal. We long for the final defeat of death and for the age when our hearts will be uncorrupted and set upon the way of Jesus. And it's from these three verses in Mark's gospel that we get that promise, these historical Jesus. He came. He did come. He is with, and he is coming again to restore all things and to make all things new. Why haven't we preached through Mark before at Advent? It's pretty good stuff. I want to close our time by offering us a space for prayer. This is a fourth Sunday of the month, even though it's the first Sunday of Advent, and that always does tricks on my mind. But what we do as a church on the fourth Sunday is we have a time of healing prayer. Today, John Epps and I are going to beat these kneeling benches. We'd love to pray for you.